a.m. Welcome back to the 2 a.m. Movie Review Club, where we stay up late talking about movies or talk about movies that made us stay up late. This week, we're continuing our Women Directors series, 20 Great Films Directed by Women, as recommended to us by Vogue. And I am super excited about this episode since I had so much fun researching and talking about the first movie on the list. This week, we're talking about Cleo from 5 to 7. I'm going to give my usual spoiler alert really quickly, my usual spoiler warning. If you haven't seen this, you are going to get spoilers. I am incapable of talking about any movie without spoilers, and even though I'm mostly going to be focused on analyzing this movie and talking about its themes and its background and so on, it's still probably a good idea to watch the movie first, especially if you're interested in it at all, and you should be! This is a really good movie! Alright, so spoilers for Cleo from 5 to 7 ahead, you have been warned! So, Cleo from 5 to 7 is a French New Wave film from 1962, and don't worry, we'll be getting into the background and history and all that good stuff later, but first, I want to actually talk about the movie and some thoughts I had on it. I'm going to start with a quick summary of the plot for those of you who have not watched it. And I really would encourage you to watch it. It's available on HBO Max. If you speak French, there is a free version on the Internet Archive, and I will have that link in the description. Also, this movie is only 90 minutes, and in my opinion, it's really, really worth your time. So please, please watch it. Either stop now and watch it, or watch it after you finish listening to this episode. But in case you have an hour to listen to me, but you don't have an hour and a half to watch the movie, here we go. Here is a quick recap. Cleo, short for Cleopatra, but it's not her real name. Her real name is Flora. Cleo is a pop star who's got three singles out, so, you know, a rising pop star, but not quite a sensation yet. And in this movie, Cleo is waiting for some test results to come back because she might have cancer. This movie is in real time, so we follow Cleo wandering around Paris for an hour and a half while she waits for her test results, which are supposed to come back that evening. And during that hour and a half, she meets up with people, and she goes shopping, and she watches a short film. And as she does all of this, she's also dealing with all kinds of fears and anxieties and self-reflection and self-growth. So, that's the basic plot, but what I actually want to talk about are the themes. And when I say I want to talk about these themes a little bit, you know what I actually mean, which is I want to talk about them a lot. Okay, so what was a really happy coincidence for me, quite serendipitous, was the day I watched this movie, I also went to go see this talk 
I went to go listen to this talk. I'm not really sure because saying that you watched a talk sounds weird, but there were like slides and stuff, so I guess... Well, I went to this talk. I went to this talk called Death is the Mother of Beauty, and it was about sublimity, sublime aesthetics in the iconic work of Japanese literature, probably the most iconic work, which is, of course, The Tale of Genji. Honestly, I would probably... I always think that The Tale of Genji is not the translation I would go with. I would probably call it The Folk Tale of Genji or The Fairy Tale of Genji, but everyone calls it The Tale of Genji, so I guess it's fine. Anyway, this talk was very, very interesting, and what I was really struck by was how applicable it was to this movie, Cleo from 5 to 7, because these themes of beauty and death and the sublime are absolutely present in this movie. The tale of Genji derives a lot of its most interesting aspects from the Japanese aesthetics and aesthetic ideals common during the time period during which that work was written and which can also be seen in modern day Japanese culture. And one of the most famous ideals of Japanese aesthetics is, of course, the idea that beauty derives from impermanence. Things are not beautiful despite their impermanence, they are beautiful because of their fleeting nature. The classic example is obviously cherry blossoms. Cherry blossoms are celebrated because their beauty is fleeting. Death gives beauty an inexpressible, intangible quality, a kind of sublimity that's beyond our comprehension because death is beyond our comprehension. And from this ideal comes the title of the lecture I went to go see, Death is the Mother of Beauty. In this movie, Cleo from 5 to 7, probably the most important through line is Cleo's conventionally attractive appearance, her beauty, and in particular, how her beauty affects the way in which she navigates the world, how the world views her, and in turn, how she views the world. Cleo's existence is inseparable from her beauty, partially because she's a pop star, which is a career that's generally tied to your appearance, and partially because being extremely conventionally attractive will always generate extreme reactions, and obviously the opposite is true as well, unfortunately. Now, before we get too deep into our analysis, can I just say that I personally love when these kinds of stories that thematically revolve around aesthetics are told through film because there is something so satisfying about how well the story matches the medium. I'm a writer, but I don't think, for example, books are generally a good or effective way to tell stories about aesthetics. For example, if I were writing Cleo from 5 to 7 as a book, I could try to tell you about how beautiful Cleo is again and again and again, but 
it would most likely feel forced and maybe even off-putting with enough repetition. But in a movie, Cleo being conventionally attractive is simply a fact that the camera can state for you. Even when the director isn't drawing attention to it or focusing on it, the viewer is always aware of it. That was a little bit of a tangent, but it was just something I wanted to point out. So Cleo is beautiful, we've established that. How does her appearance affect her character, her worldview, and her character development? And in particular, how does her appearance develop these themes of beauty and death and how, how these ideas interact? Let's start with her character. Cleo is very aware of her beauty and the fact that other people are very aware of her beauty. Because she is a pop star with a rich lover, she also appears not to really have financial issues, and so she is privileged in addition to simply being beautiful. And she is clearly comfortable with spending money. It's clear that spending money isn't really something she needs to think about before she does it. Buying hats taking taxis, even when she doesn't really need to take a taxi, all of that, the cost doesn't really matter to her. And it's probably because of both of these facts, she's rich and she's beautiful, or she's privileged and she's beautiful. I'm not entirely sure how much money she actually has of her own, so let's just say she's privileged and she's beautiful. But both of these facts affect the way in which people throughout the movie treat her. And throughout the movie, the way that people most often refer to her is as a spoiled brat, or whatever the French version of that is. I'm just going off of the subtitles here. By the way, speaking really quickly of subtitles, it's so annoying when you're watching a foreign language film and there are things that they just don't translate for you. I get that sometimes dialogue overlaps or you need to prioritize the important dialogue and not what the background characters are saying, but it's still kind of annoying when characters are speaking clearly enough that people who speak the language can definitely understand what they're saying and you can't understand it because it hasn't been translated for you. I guess the solution is just to learn French, but I just don't think that's an applicable strategy for, you know, every foreign language film, right? Anyway, that was definitely a bit of a tangent, so let's get back to talking about Cleo. Now let's talk about Cleo's worldview, and here's where things get really interesting and where we can start to bring in those ideas from the Genji discussion that I brought up earlier. During this movie, Cleo is, as we mentioned earlier, waiting to see if she has cancer. She's really afraid that she does have cancer and that she's going to die. And there are a couple of interesting aspects to this fear, particularly at the beginning of her journey, because obviously the internal journey in this film is mostly about the acceptance of death. I say mostly for reasons that we'll get to later, but for now, let's focus on that. 
you know, the acceptance of death. Near the beginning of the film, when she's first beginning to confront this idea that she might die, she says, ugliness is a kind of death. And she says that because she's beautiful, she is more alive than many of the people around her. Now, I think that what's interesting here is the way in which she links these ideas, beauty and the binary of life and death. When Cleo says that ugliness is a kind of death, she doesn't mean literal death, obviously. There are different kinds of metaphorical deaths, and what she's talking about here is death of the self. Her current sense of self would die if she were no longer beautiful. And this conception of metaphorical death is a callback to the beginning of the movie where she's visiting a fortune teller who's doing a tarot card reading for her. And when Cleo pulls the death card, the fortune teller says that the death card doesn't necessarily mean literal death, but it can also mean a great change or transformation. And obviously, even people who are considered beautiful are subject to physical change as well. At one point later in the film, Cleo says she's glad that her health issues are with her stomach because if she has stomach cancer, it won't affect her appearance as much as other forms of cancer. I'm not entirely sure that that's very true, by the way, but regardless, that's what she says. She may die a literal death from cancer, but this particular cancer doesn't have to mean the death of her conception of self. Ugliness to her is a kind of living death. And so what makes this idea that she is beautiful and is therefore more alive what makes this idea interesting is that we can tie it back to the Japanese aesthetic of beauty deriving from death. Because I think that maybe something that's often missed here is that when Japanese works of poetry or literature or whatever, when they discuss the connection between beauty and death, I think what's often overlooked is that death doesn't create beauty that isn't already perceived. It only enhances beauty that's already there. I mean, you don't see Japanese texts incorporating the aesthetic of worms or, I don't know, gnats or fruit flies. Because worms and gnats and fruit flies are not considered beautiful, even though they're similarly short-lived. Cherry blossoms and other flowers are not just short-lived, they're also fundamentally considered aesthetically pleasing on a level that transcends any philosophical meanderings about the ephemerality of life or how watching them makes us consider our own mortality or whatever. Cherry blossoms are just nice to look at fundamentally and if we can add some meaning to the sensual pleasure that we derive from their existence, then it's just more convenient, you know? It's easier to write clever poetry about. It's easier to sound smart. Saying, cherry blossoms sure are pretty, isn't particularly clever. It's an observation anyone can make. But if you make an observation about how cherry blossoms are raining down on the path you're walking and the petals look like snow and you're reflecting on how it feels like it's snowing on the path of your own mortality or whatever, then you sound smart. 
It's an observation that's probably different from everyone else's observations. The point here is just that I think it's important to note that there is certainly an aspect to this aesthetic, philosophizing and rationalizing, that's more about how sad it is that beautiful things must die, and especially how sad it is when beautiful things have to die quickly. And it's that inevitable sadness that enhances their beauty. And I think that that angle to this aesthetic idea of death giving rise to beauty is definitely relevant in the case of Cleo. Because Cleo's fixation on being beautiful stems so much from not knowing how the world would react to her if she weren't beautiful. It's not really about herself that she cares about being beautiful for her own sake and more about how others perceive her to be so beautiful. And we get this perception reinforced for us time and again throughout the film by how much literally everyone talks to her or notices her or just really uncomfortably stares at her. And throughout her journey, she becomes aware of how much this constant attention in turn makes her pay more attention to herself to the point where she's aware of the attention, but not the people giving her the attention. And she says, I only look at myself. And I think that maybe it can be said that Clea's fear of death doesn't stem from her own non-existence so much as from this fear that if she weren't alive to be looked at, she would no longer receive attention. As I mentioned earlier, she's a pop singer and there's a recurring motif throughout the film where she wants people to associate her with her music, to recognize her, and also to appreciate her songs. And it really upsets her that not only is her music not as known as she would want it to be, if she dies now, her music will never be known, and after she dies, nobody will pay any attention to her. There's a point during the movie where she questions the impact that a single song can truly have, and it's such a poignant expression of how much all artists desire some kind of artistic immortality, some kind of legacy, even pop stars who produce what most people would consider commercial music. So maybe for Cleo, it's not ugliness per se that's a kind of death, but a lack of attention, and more specifically, adoring attention. And so we can tie back to the Japanese aesthetic of beauty and death here by saying that when the beautiful object, and yes, I am using this language intentionally for reasons that we'll get to in just a moment, when the beautiful object is actually a sentient human being, this valuation of beauty as fleeting is both liberating because it acknowledges that beauty is not a permanent state, but obviously incredibly constraining at the same time because attention and validation is explicitly and exclusively tied to beauty. Now let's delve a little more deeply into Cleo's worldview and how it's affected by her beauty. A constant, never-ending source of attention and validation. 
Because this movie is not just about death and life. It's also about femininity and womanhood and most especially about female conceptions of self-worth. So as we discussed, Clea's beauty garners her a lot of attention. It is absolutely relentless in this film, the focus on the attention that Cleo receives. People are constantly talking to her, harassing her, noticing her, and as I mentioned earlier, just staring at her. There are so many times in this movie where we get these close-ups of people's faces as they look at Cleo, and it's so jarring and uncomfortable every time, which is on purpose, obviously. Now, there are two important things that I want to talk about in relation to this constant attention that Cleo receives and how it affects her. One aspect is that a huge part of her character development throughout this movie is concentrated in this one line of dialogue she has where she says that everyone looks at her, but she only looks at herself. And so throughout the movie, as she learns to see the people around her, she is able to reciprocate the attention and is also able to shift herself from the center of her own worldview. And then, of course, the other aspect is that she derives so much validation and self-worth from this constant attention, but at the same time, she's aware of how much the attention is hollow, how much it objectifies her and centers her as this untouchable, constrained archetype of the beautiful and famous woman. Throughout the movie, she has this diva-like quality to her personality where she's constantly having breakdowns and tantrums. And I mean, honestly, can you really blame her under the circumstances? And anyway, that's partially why everyone keeps calling her a spoiled brat. But I think what's important to acknowledge here is that part of why Cleo acts like this is because she's expected to act this way. At one point in the movie, she says, everybody spoils me, nobody loves me. And she understands that when you're a beautiful, privileged woman, people want to spoil you. People want you to be the overdramatic diva that they expect you to be because it allows them to put you in this box as an archetype, a stereotype, not a real person whose feelings or health you have to be worried about. And throughout the movie, nobody will take Cleo's worries about her health seriously. And part of this is obviously that they don't really care because as we just discussed, they don't really think of her as human. But going back to the themes of beauty and death that we discussed earlier, they also don't want to think that such a beautiful woman is capable of changing into an unrecognizable form, whether that's through becoming ugly or imperfect or, you know, dead. There's a certain discomfort to realizing that even people you put on a pedestal will die. But at the end of the day, the victim of this objectification is still Cleo, 
And it's really touching to see her learn to free herself of this kind of shallow, adoring attention in favor of the attention of people who actually care about her. Because those people do exist in the second half of this movie. And going back to what I said earlier about the kind of diva aspect of her personality being performative... When she's with people who actually care about her and she cares about them, she doesn't act that way. She's just, you know, normal. Alright, so that's all I had to say about the themes of this movie. Let's talk a little bit about the development and background of this movie as well as its director, obviously. And then I'll give you some random thoughts I had about the movie to close off. I guess finish off is the right word there. Close off doesn't sound quite quite right. Alright. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that this movie was part of the French New Wave, and I did some Wikipedia reading into the subject. So here's what I picked up from my Wikipedia research, which I know is a bit of an oxymoron, but here we go anyway. Essentially, the French New Wave was a filmmaking movement that was a reaction to more traditional filmmaking techniques. They used unique and often visually jarring editing techniques and styles, and they liked exploring themes that more traditional movies at the time weren't really willing to get into, especially the acceptance of death and how people deal with death. And what was really interesting to me was how one of the ideas in this movement was that in traditional films, there's a tendency for the plot to dictate the film, which is so interesting as a concept because generally speaking, and obviously I'm coming at this from my perspective as a writer, but especially when you're writing a book. There is definitely an emphasis on structure, on outlining your plot and revising your drafts so that your plot is stronger and makes more sense and so on. There's definitely a debate about writers who outline and therefore tend to follow the plot that they've already created versus writers who basically make it all up as they go along. But either way, once you've gotten to the end of that first draft and you've got a plot, you do tend to stick to it or at least some variation of it. And so in that way, when you're trying to, for example, focus on characters or themes as opposed to traditional hero's journey type storytelling... I can see how structured plots and using the tried and true plot devices and filmmaking techniques might feel limiting and constraining and like it's harder to tell out-of-the-box stories. However, I will say that, in my opinion, there is definitely a different kind of constraint and almost artifice that's necessary to tell stories the way that these French New Wave movies try to tell stories. Because there's a lot more pressure to make sure that when you're doing something new or unexpected, 
connected, you're doing it in service to the story and not just because it's new or unexpected. Because if you're doing something just because it's new or unexpected, that's going to show up. That's going to grab people's attention and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. And so I imagine these types of movies were a headache to edit unless the director started out with a really strong vision. And speaking of directors, another important part of this movement was auteur theory, which essentially means that the director doesn't just direct the movie, they're the author of the movie as well. They write the story, they shoot the movie, they edit it, and put out the final product as their distinct movie that's completely different from anyone else's. And so I think it's especially important to talk about the director of this movie, not just because we're doing a series focused on women directors, but also because this is very much her movie in that tradition of alter theory. The director of Cleo from 5 to 7 is Agnes Varda, who, according to Wikipedia, was a was a pioneer in filming outside on location in a time when technological limitations made that difficult. And you can definitely tell that Varda is working around these limitations because a lot of the outdoor crowd scenes don't really have dialogue, and if they do, it's studio-recorded internal dialogue. She also liked to hire non-professional actors, which was apparently not common back then, and not common today either, if I'm understanding non-professional correctly here. I think that most people who act in movies are, you know, serious about acting in movies. She made a lot of films that revolve around women and women's issues, which is right up my alley, obviously, and she also apparently made documentaries. She's regarded as one of the most important and influential women directors ever, which is really cool, and she continued making movies right up until she died in 2019 in her 90s, which I think we can all agree is a pretty full life. For someone who made so many movies about death and accepting death, she had a pretty good run. So that's our director, and I will obviously, obviously be looking more into her other movies in the future. And if I say this about many more of the upcoming women directors we're going to be covering... I'm going to have a lot more content than I could probably ever cover, which is good, obviously, but at the same time, I'm probably going to have to prioritize, and that makes me a little sad because there are so many amazing women directors out there, and you know, they made all these works and I feel and I feel like we owe it to these directors to watch these movies and talk about them and so on. But anyway, that's our director, and this movie, Cleo from 5 to 7, is regarded as one of her best and most influential movies. The BBC apparently did a poll a few years ago about the 100 best films made by women, and this movie ended up at number 2, 
And not only that, but our director, Agnes Varda, received the most votes out of every other director, which is pretty awesome. And hopefully I'm doing my small part to keep her legacy alive. Okay, let's close out with some random thoughts slash observations that I had about this movie. First, there's, there's a point in the film where Cleo's maid tells Cleo to do some exercise and I thought she was going to stretch or something, but no, Cleo hangs off of this bar that's suspended from the ceiling and I was so confused as to how that's supposed to be helpful. I mean, I guess it does like strengthen your arm muscles and your core, but to me it doesn't really feel like exercise. I don't know. I guess I'm just too much of a cardio person. I love cardio. I, I'll i go on the elliptical every day if I can. I It just makes me feel good, you know? And then second, the first half of the movie is definitely the most thought-provoking part. But as a viewer, I enjoyed the second half a lot more. As I mentioned earlier, I just like the characters in the second half a lot more because they actually treat Cleo like a person and Cleo is actually able to have authentic interactions with them beyond her diva persona. But also, seeing Cleo go through her character development and finally enjoy herself a bit and experience life as a person rather than as an object, is really emotional and sweet. The Guardian classifies this movie as a comedy, which I really don't get because it mostly just made me sad. But A, I'm really bad at understanding any kind of dark comedy as comedy. I love Succession. I've been watching it religiously every week. But I literally did not catch on to the fact that Succession is supposed to be funny until the third season, I think. And also, B, I guess I do see how the second half could qualify as comedy-like. It's definitely a lot lighter to watch than the first half. But overall, I just would not call this a comedy. And then something else I wanted to mention is that I love the fashion in this movie. I'm a sucker for vintage fashion in general, but there's something about especially kind of fancy high-end vintage French fashion that's just so stylish and iconic, especially the scene where Cleo's in the hat shop and she's trying on all of these hats that are objectively ridiculous to look at but also it just seems so cool to me that you can wear these hats sincerely. I don't know this movie was visually just so pleasing and that's part of why I think this movie is a classic you know you get to experience the Paris of this era there's so much footage of just the Paris streets and people walking around and also it's just so I don't know it's one of those movies that makes you nostalgic for a time and place that a you shouldn't be nostalgic for because you know a lot of people were suffering but also 
B, um, there's no reason to, you know, there's no rational reason to feel nostalgic about it because I wasn't there. I didn't experience it, but that's just how it makes you feel, you know? Finally, I just want to talk really briefly about the opening scene where Cleo is doing the tarot card reading with the fortune teller lady. Now, the opening scene, which only shows the cards on the table, is in color. So the cards are in color, but the rest of the movie is in black and white. And I'm not entirely sure that I understand the thematic significance of the tarot cards being in color when the rest of the movie is in black and white. I do understand that this tarot card reading is very important because it's mostly verified by the events of the movie and it's also very important in Cleo's mind because it kind of represents her anxious slash superstitious thinking which she obviously overcomes by the end of the movie. But I'm not entirely sure why we needed the tarot cards to be in color. I feel like we would have understood their significance regardless, so someone smarter than me will have to um, explain it to me, I guess. But overall, I really enjoyed this movie, and I really think that everyone else should watch it too. I mean, hey, it was voted number two best women-directed movie ever, so please watch it. It's on HBO Max, it's on the Internet Archive if you don't need subtitles, and I think it's both an important movie, but also just a really worthwhile viewing experience. And it's one of those movies where I feel that different people are going to get different things out of it because it's such a layered, nuanced work of art. So that's our second movie on the list of women-directed movies. And I'm really excited to move on to the next movie on the list. But not next week, because next week I'm going to be doing an unexpected Theater Tuesday episode because I realized that a movie I've been looking forward to for like a year now is finally in theaters. I guess I wasn't keeping up well enough, and so I'm going to go see it, and hopefully everything goes well, and then next week that will be on the schedule instead of the next women-directed movie. But after that, after that, I promise we are going to move on to the next movie on the list. And so I hope you guys tune in for both of those episodes. All right, that's everything for this week. This has been the 2AM Movie Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week, and happy movie watching! Thank <laughs> you.